Welcome to It Is Written Canada. Thank you for joining us in beautiful Kelowna, British Columbia. Our special guest again is Don Straub, a practicing clinical counsellor who helps people struggling with everyday problems by giving them powerful, practical solutions. Don is going to look at the topic of acceptable addictions. Don, welcome back to It Is Written Canada. Thank you for this great opportunity to be on your program. Don, let me begin by asking you, what do you mean by an acceptable addiction? Our society, unfortunately, stereotypes addiction, and especially people with addictions. So many people just look down their noses at people with addiction. When really the truth is, most of us are addicted to something. It may be food, gambling, shopping, social media. Uh, TV watching, Netflix, uh, video games, and my acceptable addiction, work. So, Don, would you say that some addictions are worse than others? I would probably lean that direction. Because, like I say, some of the addictions that people have are necessary things in our life. Like, we eat, we work, uh, we shop. Uh, and not everybody develops addictions to these. So. In the field of counseling, what we do is we question the person and we determine if they have an addiction or not by how adverse their, um, their life is as a result of that behavior. Like, are they functioning well at work? Are they functioning well physically, physical health, uh, their marriages? Are they being adversely affected by their behaviors? And when a person's uh, life in any part of their life is adversely affected by their behavior, we would label that an addiction. Because see, what happens with addiction is people will continue this behavior in spite of whatever pain it causes them, whatever adverse effects it has on them. In fact, people have lost marriages, they've lost their job, they've lost their money, they've even lost their children to the ministry, and they've even lost their physical health because they cannot seem to find control over this behavior. So Don, what causes people to develop addictions? Well, let me start with what the research says it's not, okay? Because there are myths. For instance, there is no genetic cause uh, for addiction. They thought it was because it seemed to run in families. But with all the gene mapping that scientists do, we've never found any kind of genetic connection to it addiction in the sense that there's a genetic gene for addiction. The second myth about addiction is that it's a moral failure. You know, just say no to drugs. If people could just say no to drugs and that would be the end of it, we wouldn't have the problems we have. But people can't say no. That's the problem. The third myth about addiction has to do with the fact that not every substance 
not every behavior is addictive. For instance, thousands of people take opiates for surgeries, for pain. Only a certain percentage of those, a small percentage, actually become addicted to that substance or, that, or the different behaviors. So that's what we know about what doesn't cause addiction. But the research clearly shows what does cause addiction is pain. You see, pain is pain. It could be physical pain, it could be emotional pain. The conscious brain knows the difference, but the unconscious brain treats all pain the same. I could have the pain of touching a hot stove, or I can have the pain of shame, or anxiety, or depression, and pain causes the addiction. Gabor Mate, who is uh, kind of a guru and a researcher of addiction, uh, who used to work with, with uh, people in addiction in Eastside Vancouver, has written several books and talks about this problem, and he would say it this way. The question is not, why the addiction? The question is, why the pain? See, pain comes in many forms. What I've discovered is that people in addiction, and I'm probably talking 99% of people in addiction, have one or usually more additional mental health diagnosis. They have depression, they have high anxiety, uh, they have personality disorders, they have ADHD, they have schizophrenia, they have bipolar. There's all of these uh, mental health issues that cause them pain because these are not easy things to live with and they're, they're things that medical science is really sometimes at a loss to help. And so they suffer from the not only the pain of these mental disorders, but there's so much shame that's carried by having a mental disorder. They're shunned by family members, people don't know how to treat them. And then when you have these mental disorders, we often end up with job loss, which leads to homelessness, which leads to hunger, poverty, and, and all of this even adds more shame to a person's life. And this all adds up to even more pain. So Don, if addiction is not genetic, why does it run in the family? You know, it took us a while to figure that out because it does seem to run in families. But what we've studied is that families perpetuate their lifestyle and their abuse to their children. There's a principle that goes hurt people, hurt people. We also know that addiction runs in certain cultures such as First Nations, as an example. It's not genetic in the sense that it's passed on genetically, but they have this, this history and a chronic history of being marginalized by mainstream society, and that's painful. So it just passed on this way. And then when I, I thought of this, I thought of a verse in Scripture. It's in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, where God says, I punish, I punish the children for their sins of their parents to the third and fourth generations. And I've always read that and wondered, what does that mean? I mean, does God actually punish innocent people for somebody else's sins? That does not fit the character of God. But then, you see, I remembered, like I said in the previous episodes, that, that in the Bible, it, it speaks like God actually causes what he doesn't prevent. And so when you think about it, he, he chooses to operate this universe on the law of freedom and love. And so if you just allow freedom, which he does, then that's how hurt people hurt people. And these habits, these behaviors, these painful hurts, these traumas are passed on generationally. But there's hope. Jesus came to break that cycle.
The cycle doesn't have to keep perpetuating if we introduce into that cycle help. Most of us live pretty sheltered lives. And it wasn't until I became a clinical counselor and dealt with people in addiction that I began to see what goes on behind closed doors. I could not begin to tell you the pain that I hear every day coming from clients that come to me. I, I, it's triple X. I could not even talk about it in public. So you're dealing with a lot of this pain. How do you manage it yourself? Well, to start with, I go to my own counselor. <laughs> I take trauma counseling because there's secondary trauma. I can become traumatized by listening to the trauma. But in a nutshell, and I'm going to talk a lot about this in a future episode, I have learned from my own addiction to think differently about myself and to take care of myself. So, Don, you have been in addiction too, and yet you were raised in a Christian family and worked for the church. How did that happen? Well, I did mention before that I was actually the leader of two organizations. I was principal of a school and pastor of a church. And with these positions comes a lot of work, a lot of stress. Actually, it was two full-time jobs. So in that sense, I was under stress. In addition to that, my wife Penny, as I mentioned in a previous episode, was really living on the edge of death for many years, 12 years, keep, uh, being kept alive by intravenous feeding uh, within our own home. It was like a hospital, knowing that she would die any day and could be any day. This went on for 12 years. And on top of that, when you're a leader and you decide to follow where Jesus is leading and taking you in his life, not everybody likes your decisions. Sometimes you have to make some pretty hard decisions and you can't please everybody. And of course, you know, there's criticism, there's judgment, there's gossip, even lies can be passed around. Gossip is a, is a really awful thing. And this adds to the pain. After my wife Penny died, my, my, one of my daughters gave birth to uh, our first grandchild. And he was born with, we didn't know what. It was, it, he almost was gonna die. He was living on the edge of death himself. Now he's 16, but he still can't talk. He can't communicate. He wears diapers. Uh, it's heartbreaking to see your grandchild and then your daughter and her husband going through the pain of this. You feel the pain yourself. I just felt all this pain. So Don, tell us about your healing process and about your discoveries. The details are in my book, but to keep it short, basically I came to a place in my life where I reached a burnout. They call it a burnout. It's actually called an adrenal burnout. Because what was happening there, to cope with my pain, I was keeping myself busy all the time. Wouldn't let myself stop and take a break and rest. I had to keep working to keep my mind going in a good place. And when you're continuously working, your adrenal glands are continuously pumping out adrenaline. So actually what was going on is I was high on my own adrenaline. I was addicted to the chemical adrenaline. In fact, we know now that every addiction, whether it's a substance addiction or a process addiction like gambling or work, is actually still a chemical addiction. And my, my body was just pumping out adrenaline and I was just riding the wave. 
until I started to get symptoms. And it was a friend and colleague of mine who suffered a burnout himself as a pastor years before me who came to me and said, Don, I'm noticing some symptoms. And of course, my wife, Juanita, she was noticing some things were off too. And so they, they asked me if I would go to see a doctor. So I promised them I would go to the doctor and I would tell them exactly what my symptoms were, what I was experiencing, what my wife was experiencing, what my friend was noticing. And there I was telling the doctor and he reached for his prescription pad and he started to write and I started to go, oh no, I don't want pills. Ripped it off his uh, pad and he handed me this piece of paper. And it said, clean out your desk and do not report to work until I give you permission. And I said, uh, I have two desks. I'm both a principal and a pastor. He snatched it back and he scratched it and rewrote, clean out both desks and do not go to work until I give you permission. And that was the beginning of a fairly lengthy healing process, which probably, I didn't really probably completely heal for about three years. But within the first year, I knew I had to resign from both jobs, one at a time. But fortunately, I belong to a church who really believes in the holistic approach to health. In other words, we're biopsychosocial spiritual beings. So our body affects our minds, our minds affect our body, just as we've been talking about. Our thoughts affect our emotions and our physical body. And so they paid for me to go to a place for two weeks, which is called Silver Hills Guest House. And, and the manager there, Phil Brewer, was a wonderful person. And by spending two weeks there with a healthy diet and in nature and having these daily talks with Phil, I began to heal. And one, while I was there, one of the staff members told me to read this book, handed me this book. And it was entitled Never Good Enough by Carol Cannon, a book published by my own church. And I read that book and it started to open up ideas and it started to make me become aware of, of why I was thinking and why I was doing what I was doing. The essence of this book was that oftentimes when it comes to addiction, in fact most of the time, it's because we don't feel like worthy, valuable. Remember we talked in the past about our thoughts, how we put ourselves down and I was never feeling good enough. I felt I could never measure up and it wasn't necessarily to God but to myself, to my church, to my family and I would have to work harder and longer to feel good about myself. So how do you know that you are good enough? And that's the problem is I was doing, I was finding it out by assessing how many compliments I got. Don, good job, or Don, we can't, we can't do this without you. And that's what I was looking for. It was actually kind of, in a, as I found out later, an addiction to approval. I needed that approval to feel good about myself. And I realized that in my past, I was always, you know, the last person picked on a ball game team. I, I, I was teased and bullied at school, pimples, you know, skinny runt. And, and, and then I, from this book, I also found out that a, a lot of people are raised in good, healthy, religious homes and good, healthy churches. But because of some environments, it's like perfectionism. And, and, and we're taught we have to do it perfectly or we're not good enough. And so I, I realized that I had never felt good enough to, to myself, to others. Now here's a truth that I've discovered and I teach it all the time. As human beings, our greatest need is acceptance. We're wired that way. We're wired for connection. 
which means our greatest fear is rejection. And when our greatest fear is rejection, we will go to all kinds of ways to avoid being judged and rejected. And that's the thing about you know, being a leader. You're gonna be constantly liked or not liked or judged or criticized. And I was trying to please everybody. So what I've learned is that if, if a person is gonna heal from addiction, it must be done in an environment of, with 100% acceptance and non-judgment, which is what I do as a clinical counselor when I, my clients come to me, which is what we do in our live-in addictions treatment center, is we set up an environment where no one is judged for, for any reason at all. They're accepted and loved. Of course, we have to have rules. We have to protect each other from each other. Uh, we have to have boundaries, but we don't like kick people out for doing this or maybe even using. We, we work with them, we have grace for them, and we help them learn from their mistakes. So Don, it seems to me that the church should be a safe place for those that are struggling with addictions. Absolutely it should be because we talk about the church being a hospital for sinners, don't we? But unfortunately it often is not. So many times within the church people are judged they're even dismissed or kicked out of church for some of the things, but mostly people just leave because they don't feel like they're accepted the way they are. The thing is, most of my clients, both in my private practice and in the Center for Addiction, are not Christians. And because of my ethical principles that I have to work with, with my license, and because of the fact that I work in a place that's funded by the government, we have to be careful. What we do is we honor everybody's religious beliefs as equal. We respect and honor them. Now it gives me many opportunities though to share a little bit. And I will ask permission or I will say something like, you know, like we're all worthy and valuable. And for those of you who believe in Jesus, you could, you could tell yourself, I'm a child of God. And others are listening to that too, but we don't make apologies for that. We just don't force our religion on other people. So in what we do, uh, we practice something called well-briety. Well-briety, don't you mean sobriety? <laughs> exactly. I used to use the word sobriety for years and years, but then I've learned this new word called well-briety, which actually comes from the First Nations culture. And I love it because well-briety says what sobriety means. And so it's a very holistic approach. And, and people in addiction love that word well-briety. I'm living in well-briety because addiction has to go from a place of just not stopping something, but starting something new and different and healthy. This is how I illustrate it with my clients. Now this is a game of pretend, obviously. So let's pretend this is real, real money, okay? So I will ask you the question, what's this worth? A hundred dollars? Exactly. Now, we could say it another way. We could say, what's its value? A hundred dollars. Exactly. Now you can see why I didn't want to use a real one today. So the question is now, what's it worth now? Nothing. Nothing. That's what most people say. But the truth is, it's still worth a hundred dollars. Unless I burn it up and disappear the serial number, I can take this to the bank and they will give me a new one. And here's the illustration. We come into this world worthy and valuable. It's how God created us. We're precious. 
I mean, I have four children. Every one of them came into this world as priceless. I could not put any kind of a price on any one of my children. I would die for that child. And that's how we come into this world. And that's how God sees us. But then, things happen to us. You know, people come along and they abuse us. They, they bully us. They betray us. They abandon us. Sometimes the most hurtful things are done by parents themselves. But it could be teachers or fellow students, classmates. And so we begin to feel that we're not important. We're not valuable. That we're just worthless. And that's where the cycle begins. The cycle of shame, of feeling shame. Never good enough. But the truth is, we are God's children. And he sees us as worthy and valuable. I don't have to prove that anymore to anybody. I don't even have to prove it to myself anymore. I am enough, regardless. My sins, my mistakes do not define me. My imperfections do not define me. I am enough. This is all I needed to know and all I need to know.
my God is my father. I am his child. He loves me regardless. To him, I am worthy and valuable. I am worthy and valuable. This is my identity. It's so true. This is our identity. And thank you for closing on that. I wonder if you could end with a word of prayer for us. Sure. Thanks, Don. Father, what a beautiful word to be able to say to you, the God of the universe and King, Abba God, Father God. Thank you for calling us your children and your friends. Thank you for showing us by your death on the cross, our value and our worth. I just pray that everyone that is listening would embrace that truth and that our identity is in you and we don't have to prove that value to you or anyone else, including ourselves. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Don, Mark, and I want to thank you so much for sharing that very important topic on Eddie's Written Canada today. Thank you. Friends, as Don shared with us, God's love sets us free from addictions. And we want to give you a chance to learn more about this freedom by sending you our free offer today, which is Don's book entitled Bridges to Freedom, Creating Change Through Science and Christian Spirituality. In Bridges to Freedom, Don shares his analysis of scripture and scientific research to help you enjoy spiritual growth, manage your emotions, and cultivate healthy relationships. To move closer to the Lord, get past your mistakes, and learn life lessons with the essential bridges to freedom described in this book. Before you go, we would also like to invite you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, and also listen to our podcasts. And if you go to our website, you can see our latest programs, including our cooking demonstrations, our short spiritual messages entitled Daily Living, and our exercise workouts called Experiencing Life. We want you to experience the truth that is found in the words of Jesus when he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Thank you for listening today. If you would like to watch a video of this podcast, please visit iiw.ca. Or you can go to our IIW Canada YouTube channel and click on the Videos tab. Once again, thank you so much for listening.